Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 513. I'm not actually here right now. I know it looks like I am, but I'm not. I'm on vacation. I recorded this just before I left. Uh, so we'll do things a little bit differently this week. We'll probably not have the question and answer at the end. Uh, in lieu of an ad, I just want to remind you about our campaign uh, to help get a COVID clinic started in uh, northern India. If you head to impactnations.com slash India, you can learn all about it. There's a video there telling you about the problem and how we are looking to address that. Uh, so impactnations.com slash India. And now here is the conclusion of Matthew chapter 5. Hi, everyone. Good to be together again as we continue on in our series on the Gospel of Matthew. have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to dig right in. And we're picking up where we left off in chapter 5, starting at verse 31, where Jesus was talking about divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, now Jesus develops his teaching on divorce uh, much more fully in chapter 19, and we'll deal with that, you know, many weeks from now. But uh, for now, I want to at least look at these verses briefly. Uh, there was a widespread controversy among the Jews in Jesus' time uh, around the interpretation of the Old Testament law. And let me give it to you. It's Deuteronomy 24.1. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable, objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, there were two rabbinical traditions. Uh, one was uh, the tradition of Shemei, who said that the only basis for divorce is uh, infidelity and chastity. The, the more liberal stream of thought was uh, the rabbi Hillel, and he said a man can divorce his wife for anything that displeases him. So it was extremely broad. So it's interesting that the, the Pharisees, they were concerned with the grounds for divorce. We see this especially in chapter 19. But Jesus focused on the sanctity of marriage, whereas they, they pointed to the negative, he brought it to the positive. You know, in that day, divorce was fully up to the man. The woman had, had no say in it, no recourse, and no protection. She could be put out of her own home immediately, which, by the way, is the same situation for tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of, of women around the developing world. Um, women in India uh, put out of their homes. Uh, we've worked with some of them who were literally thrown out, and their options are, are begging or prostitution or suicide. Uh, we're dealing right now uh, in providing protection for the unprotected women uh, that we work with in Uganda and Kenya. So, so what was an issue then is an issue now. Jesus was concerned with God's perfect intention for marriage, uh, the sanctity of marriage. And and he was also concerned with protecting vulnerable women. He's protecting women from the arbitrary nature of a male-dominated society. Our friend Christostom uh, from uh, the 5th uh, century, late 4th, early 5th century, said this, How can one who is meek and a peacekeeper and poor in spirit, see he's going right back to the Beatitudes, and merciful, how can such a one cast out his wife? How can one who reconciles be alienated from her that is his own? I want to just share with you some, some stuff I gleaned a few weeks ago from one of my favorite teachers. There's so many good ones now, but uh, Greg Boyd out of uh, Minnesota. He said this, God's ideal is that people would be committed for life to one another, that, that Jesus says they're one flesh for their entire lives. Uh, 
But in the real world, divorce was happening in Jesus' time just like it's happening now. Some of us get the wrong idea that, that divorce was rare back then. No, it wasn't. It was extremely common. And <clears throat> so God's intention is that a, a man and a woman commit themselves covenantally for the rest of their lives. But in the real world, divorce happens, and God always honors our decisions. This is one of the amazing things about the Lord. He, he doesn't coerce, he doesn't override our decisions. He influences us for sure, but he never forces us. Uh, God accommodates us um, and, and accepts us as we are in our fallen state. That doesn't mean he says, oh, that's no problem, that's okay. But, but he works with us. Uh, he provides a loving way forward in the midst of our failure. We need to know that. Those of us who, who maybe you've wrestled with, or you're in the midst of divorce, or you've come out of painful divorce, and there's been sense of guilt or shame that, that never really goes away, I, I want to just take a couple of minutes and, and look at how Jesus approached this. Because he does provide a loving way forward in the midst of our failure. You know, some say that God's holiness would never allow divorce. But we, all through the Old Testament, we see God accommodating behavior that is less than his perfect plan. Abraham had, had multiple wives and concubines. Abraham uh, Jacob had wives. David, just as I've been reading through Second uh, Samuel, David had, it seemed like, more and more wives. You see, some say that God is too holy to allow divorce. Others say he's too holy to even look upon sin. But the truth is his holiness was most perfectly demonstrated and displayed at the cross. What did he do at the cross? Did he stay back? I'm too holy for this. He says, no, it was his holiness that took him straight into the midst of people's sin and failure and brokenness. Now, he's the same Christ on this issue of marriage and divorce. So I think his point here with the religious leaders and for us is is why are you looking for grounds of divorce? So they go, what, what makes it okay? The only real question should be, is there something that is still here in this marriage that we can work with? One of the great delights of decades of pastoring were on those occasions where couples thought they were about to divorce. There was nothing left. And as we prayed together, and, and I prayed for them without them knowing it maybe, it, there, the spark would come. The spark would come. And, and I, I, I could give you specific examples. 30 years later, they're still totally committed to each other in a happy uh, marriage, not where they're grinding their teeth. We've got to be together because God won't allow otherwise. Yes, he will. Let's go to the second issue concerning oaths. Verse 33 to 37, again, you've heard it said that those, uh, said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. And here we have that antithesis again. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven or, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. So why does he say, don't swear by your head or Jerusalem? It's because the, the religious leaders, the scribes, had developed an elaborate system of escape from binding oaths. They said, if you avoided using God's name in the oath, then the oath wasn't binding. They said, instead, you could swear by your own head, or you could swear by Jerusalem, or by heaven and earth. Jesus is saying, honest men don't need to resort to speaking oaths. We must keep our promises. We must be people of our word. And we've all experienced the pain of encountering brothers and sisters in the faith who did not keep their word, who were not honest with us. And we probably can, 
can say, Lord, the same is true for us at one time or another. You know, if if we keep our promises, if we're people of our word, then oaths are completely unnecessary. St. Hilary said this, those who are living in the simplicity of faith have no need for the ritual of an oath. With such people, what is, always is, and what is not, is not. Chromatius said this, the law prescribes that one must not swear falsely, but according to the gospel, one must not swear at all. You see again that Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to complete the law to take it to its great and final intention. And there's a good example right here. Chrysostom, for this is the purpose of an oath. Everyone who swears, swears to the fact that what he is saying is true. Therefore, the Lord does not want a gap between our oath and our ordinary speech. In other words, as soon as we feel it's necessary to bolster what we said with an oath in order to persuade others to believe the truth of what we said, well, the whole ideal of, of transparency, of, of truthfulness is completely compromised. I think of that quote from Shakespeare, methinks he protest, protesteth too much. So let's move on to the real meat of what I want to talk about today. It's kind of in two parts. And the first part is concerning retaliation. And I've titled this the third way. Start at verse 38, chapter 5. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, there it is again, the antithesis. Do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go be also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Remember the theme that we've said as we've come through so far on the sermon. Jesus' aim is not to set up a new system of rules to follow. It's to lead us into greater righteousness beyond actions to the motive of the heart. It's it's about leaving behind our rights to retribution in favor of something completely different, the Jesus way, the way of the kingdom. And he, he gives us various examples we'll look at over the next few minutes to say it's a whole other way. Now, this may be the single most challenging section of Jesus' teaching, verses 38 to 48. In fact, I think it is. Because this teaching goes beyond our actions. Although uh, authentic love must be expressed in action, but it goes to the very core of how we live. Folks, these verses, this, these passages have been like a plow digging into my heart for the last two or three weeks. And, and uh, it's been interesting. I've, I've had times of, of sorrow and mourning. I've, I've had times of, of just repentance. I've had, I've had a, a myriad of, of feelings. But the point is, if we will let them, these words in the Sermon on the Mount will go deep into our hearts. They will cut across our prejudices and especially our self-protection. That's so instinctive. It seems automatic. We want to protect our ego self. Now, the church fathers were realists. I have many a time as I've talked about this with friends, they've said, oh, well, this isn't realism. It is complete realism. I agree with E. Stanley Jones. He said, if the kingdom isn't realism, then it is of no value. It is of infinite value, and it is infinitely realistic. And I hope we're going to get there today, that you'll see that. Let me just quote one of the church fathers. For as long as we live in this world over which the devil rules, remember, Paul says that the devil is the god of this world or the god of this age. As long as we live in this world over which the devil rules, slanderers, fighters, persecutors will 
necessarily abound. If, however, following the mandate of Christ, we do not resist evil, then even if the evil ones are not harmed, still the good will remain. I want to talk to you about a law that's called uh, Lex Talionis. It's Deuteronomy 19.21. Listen to this from the law. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In fact, this law was repeated uh, several times in the Old Testament, both as law and through narrative. If you read through, for example, Judges, you read through First and Second Samuel, uh, we are confronted with this. Today in my reading in Second Samuel, I just kept thinking, there it is again, Lex Talionis, that, that it's all about retributive justice. The show no pity command expresses a principle, which is this. What a person has done wrong needs to be undone by doing the same wrong back to them in order to balance the social scale of justice. <laughs> that is so true, isn't it? As nations, we're scorekeepers. As individuals, we're scorekeepers. That, that justice it has to be retributive. It has to be a balancing that people receive what they gave out. And Jesus says no. Now, there's really no way around this. Jesus ended the old commandment to show no pity. And in its place, he he commanded his followers to be merciful. The law was concerned with equal restitution. Instead, Jesus tells those who would follow him, who would follow him on his Jesus way, he said, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. It's easy to read it. It's easy to say, oh, yes. And then when we're confronted with someone who attacks us, slanders us, assaults us, whatever it may be, now we come face to face with the reality of what Jesus said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Jesus releases his community from the political and legal order, from the national form of the people of Israel, and makes it into what it truly is, namely, the community of the faithful that is not bound by political or national ties. Bonhoeffer held true to that no matter what, and it cost him his life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting the eternal divine ethic of the kingdom. I've told you, Matthew is the most ethical of the four Gospels. The kingdom will not operate in retribution because kingdom people, his followers, will live justly, mercifully, lovingly, peacefully with one another. And Jesus never suggests that This isn't practical in the real world. Never once does he say that. His followers dwell in an alternate society, not one that blends the surrounding culture with the kingdom. Let me say that again. As followers of Jesus, we dwell in an alternate society, a a counterculture, if you will, not one that blends the surrounding culture with that of the kingdom. Brian Zond wrote this. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he wasn't just trying to produce kinder, gentler people. He was trying to refound the world. Instead of retaliatory, uh, retaliatory violence, the world is to be refounded on co-suffering love. That is so much at the heart of the gospel. That is one of the most transformative understandings and and perspectives in my own life in the last 10 years. What you always hear me talking about, canonic love. Jesus, Jesus demonstrated his holiness. He demonstrated his love by, by emptying himself. We follow the one 
who didn't fight back, who died rather than fight back. That's the one who said, follow me. Now, Jesus gives us four concrete examples to help us get our our thinking around this. And it's interesting because all of them are in the second person singular. That means when he says you, he's talking to you, talking to me. And uh, so we've got to deal with these. We can't sidestep them. We can't water them down. He says, do not resist an evildoer. That is non-resistance, right? Except Jesus resisted evil all the time. The Bible does not teach non-resistance, but resistance without violence. Now, how can I say that? Because the Greek word used here for non-resistance, used here for uh, resistance, actually, um, you must not resist an evildoer. The, The word used there was a military word, and it it literally meant um, to stand against. A better translation would be, do not take revenge upon, or do not try to get even with. Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. The implications of that are huge. Nonviolent resistance is what he's calling for. And in it, the poor, the oppressed, they claim their dignity and they open the door to a whole new relationship with the oppressor and the oppressed. If the oppressor, if you come back against the oppressor with violence, guess what? You've got pea shooters and he's got howitzers. You're staying in his arena. You're doing things according to his way, which is antithetical to the way of the kingdom. Jesus is is issuing a call for assertiveness, but non-violent assertiveness. It takes courage. It takes courage. I suddenly just remembered. I know a gal who stood with Shane Claiborne on the Iraq border as tanks, United Nations tanks came. And they stood their ground until the tanks stopped. That took courage. I just thought of that. But you see, that's nonviolent resistance. It's a call for assertiveness, not wimpiness, but nonviolent, creative. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying, instead of just getting even, don't do that. Be creative. Surprise him. And to do that, that rests on faith that the meekness of the cross conquers all. Isaiah 50, verse 6 and 7. He's, it's a whole section on the suffering servant. He's looking ahead prophetically centuries to, to Christ. And he says this, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Back to St. Hilary. The Lord who accompanies us on our journey offers his own cheek uh, 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 to slap and his shoulders to whip to the increase of his glory. So we've got four examples here. The first, very famous, turn the other cheek. He's not telling us to offer ourselves for continued beating. You see, in in that first century Palestine, in the Roman world, uh, it's very particular. A slap was an insult. It wasn't really an attack on you physically that it was going to beat you to the ground, but it was an attack on your worth, on your honor. Uh, and so a, a, a slap touches our pride deeply. It's meant to humiliate, to degrade. It says, you are inferior to me. And so when that happens to us, we, we've got two options. We can fight or we or flight. But Jesus is saying there's a third way. Let me try to explain this quickly. In the Roman world, 
If I slap you, it's with the back of my hand. This way is, is to try to injure you. The slap is to injure your personhood. And so he says, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other. Well, as you're sitting there, figure that out. If I, if I hit you on your right cheek and now you turn your other cheek, nobody's head turns 180 degrees, I can't hit you. I've just changed the parameters. What he's saying is, refuse to accept um, this kind of behavior anymore. By, by turning the cheek so he can't hit you, you're saying, I'm human. I, I'm a child of God. I won't accept your behavior anymore, but I'm not going to fight back. Disciples are part of a new community that will uh, allow their honor to be slighted without taking revenge. Howard Thurman, I like very much. He was uh, Martin Luther King's mentor. He said the balm for that burning humiliation is humility. For humility cannot be humiliated. Someone humiliates you, but you choose to walk in humility. So, He's saying, stand up, but don't respond back in the same way. Find new ways, this third way. When this command has been obeyed by entire people groups, nations have changed. The two classic examples from the last century are Gandhi in India. He brought what at the time was the most powerful empire on earth, the British Raj, he brought it to its knees without ever fighting, ever. Martin Luther King and, and his nonviolent resistance. It was resisting, but it was nonviolent. And he changed history. To quote Chrysostom again, we resist by surrendering ourselves to suffer wrongfully. In this way, you shall prevail over the evil one. And listen to this. For one fire is not quenched by another, but fire is quenched by water. This is how Jesus responded before the Sanhedrin the night he was arrested. We need to remember what James said. He said, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Quoting Hillary again, the Lord wishes that the hope of our faith, extending into eternity, be tested by these things. Faith does not permit resentment for injury, nor does it wish for revenge. The second example he gives us is, is being sued. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. This, by the way, only happened to the poorest people. Jesus is telling the poor to use the system against itself. It's a time we can hardly imagine what it was like to be poor in first century Palestine. Under Roman policy, because they were constantly at war somewhere in their empire, trying to hold on to what they had or expand what they had, therefore there was incredibly heavy taxes. Um, And and there was a whole system of really high interest on any loans. So people lived in debt. The system, it it stripped them. It stripped the the poor people, which is the regular folks. It stripped them of their land, of their goods, sometimes even their outer garment. You know what's really interesting is uh, there was, a, as many of you know, there was a revolution in AD 66, it culminated in the destruction of Israel in 70. But the first thing those revolutionaries did was burn the temple treasury where the records of debt were kept. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus says, so when you're being sued and you're asked for your outer coat, strip off all your clothes. Be naked. It's outrageous, right? Because what happens is suddenly they're, making, they're trying to make you feel weak and ashamed and poor. It switches. The shame falls on the person who's causing this. Nakedness was taboo in that society. So they turned the tables. You see, it's a third way. The poor, the poor one has risen above shame and protest, 
protested against the system by doing this. The oppressor is confronted with what his actions really cause. And frankly, it gives him an opportunity to repent. Jesus was not preaching an idealism, but a strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. Let's look at the third example, the second mile. If he commands you to go one mile, go two. That's the Roman soldiers. So first we had the slap, then the coat, now the mile, and they're all degrading. But this, at that time, first century Palestine, this was the most offensive to the Jews, that any soldier could say, you, pick up my pack, which weighed 40 to 70 pounds, by the way, and you have to walk for a mile. So the whole nature of the Roman occupation was was compulsory, a constant reminder that they had no rights, that they were second class in their own country. But here's the deal. Roman law said they could ask any Jew to walk one mile, but not two. So to walk a second mile is an infraction of their code. And suddenly, this puts the soldier into a place of confusion. He doesn't know what to do. He could get in trouble with with his superior. Jesus knew that insurrection and violence were futile. Near the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, put away your sword. The rules are Caesar's. They're Caesar's. But the response of Jesus' followers to those rules is beyond Caesar's control. Do you hear that? That was true with the British Raj. That was true with white racism in the South in the 60s and 50s and 60s. Yeah, they, they, uh, they set the rules. But the response to the rules does this. The oppressed have now taken back the power of choice. This is not about earning merit with God. Oh, if I turn the other cheek, then, then you know, I get brownie points. It is a nonviolent creative protest designed to neutralize the oppressor. Please understand, Jesus is a realist. And yet we can't separate this from the command to love our enemies, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. It's a call to behave with dignity. Uh, Even when the oppressors have the visible power, Jesus is offering his audience, who were mainly the poor, another way to live. Another way that the kingdom breaks in. Uh, Another way to be what he said we were, salt and light change agents, to change the culture, change society, change situations. He's offering a way to oppose the enemy in a way that that opens the door for the enemy to change. So it's a win-win. So he says, don't react violently to evil. Don't fight. But don't cringe before it either in, in flight. Now, it's interesting on this walk with him two miles. As always, we come back to, to there's, 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 there's a literal reading and a moral reading and a spiritual reading. Let me give you a very interesting one from uh, St. Chromatius. Some believe that this section, this is about walking the mile, the second mile, is to be understood spiritually in this fashion. If a non-believer or one who has not yet followed the knowledge of the truth makes mention of the one God, the Father, the founder of all things, as if coming to God by the way of the law, go with that one the second mile. That is, after his profession of God the Father, lead this same person by the way of truth to the knowledge of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an interesting reading for the second mile? The last example is give to him who asks. Now, it says give, give to whoever asks, but it doesn't say give whatever they ask. Almost all of us at one time or another are confronted by the homeless. I, I, I'm very happy to be 
doing some stuff now regularly with the homeless, and and I've been doing stuff with the homeless for years. But that means I have, like you, constantly being asked, have you got any money? Have you got any money? And the reality is that though it's not always true, very often that's going to go to substance abuse. So Jesus didn't say give whatever he asks. He just says give to whoever asks. So if what he's asking for or she's asking for is going to hurt them, it's not appropriate, don't, don't give them that. Give them what is helpful. The, the classic, many of us have done this, I'm sure, is they ask for money, I'm hungry, we take them right over to a, a restaurant or even a fast food place. Remember Lex Talianus said, show no mercy. Jesus is saying, no, 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 show mercy. Everywhere show mercy. Instead of, of prosecution and retribution to deal with the balance of justice, and so much of our justice system, virtually all of it, is built upon retributive justice, eye for an eye, balancing the scales, Jesus shows us another way, which we've called today the third way, to show that mercy will unravel the system of retribution that dominates our society. So, let's go to this final section, love your enemies. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This whole section, as I said earlier, verse 38 to 48, is I think his most challenging teaching. And we are right now at the, at the heart of it, at the center of it. I think it's the most radical and challenging of all of his moral directives. And if, if we really will embrace it, it forces us to dig deeply into our own hearts and our own motives, which is consistent with what I told you about the Beatitudes, that as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, it pushes us back again and again to the Beatitudes. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a political prisoner in the gulags in Russia. Um, These gulags were absolutely terrible. Christina and I had an opportunity to get in the very week that the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, I can't remember if it was that trip or the next one. I've been there a lot of times. I got to meet a bunch of (laughs) Alexander Solzhenitsyns, of men who had spent much of their lives in these gulags. And what came out of them was an incredible grace and forgiveness. The single most powerful picture I ever saw was called Forgiveness. One of them had painted. And it was 70 sevens on a canvas. 70 times seven. How many times must I forgive my brother? Anyway, Solzhenitsyn. While he was in the gulag, he discovered that the, the line of hostility ran not between himself and his enemy, But at its core, it ran through his own heart and every human heart. He said this, The dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. He said, you've got to take up your cross and die. Die daily. Now we're getting to what he's talking about. He's taking us even deeper now than he did with those four examples. Because in the four examples, he took us to do not resist or retaliate. Um, and now he moves it from, from what we're not supposed to do to the positive. Seek the good of your persecutors. Pray for them. He says, you know, love, love your neighbor is the key. And so the key question 
is Luke 10, who is my neighbor, right? The beginning of the Good Samaritan story. In the Old Testament, the neighbor was defined very specifically as a fellow member of the covenant community. They had a very ethnocentric worldview. That was the worldview Jesus was challenging with these words. Now, he gives a whole new definition. To love your neighbor is to love the one that God loves. I enjoy reading the contemplatives. It's kind of part of my morning time. It has been for many, many years. And I go through various ones. But uh, the last mm, two weeks, I've been reading one of Thomas Merton's books again. And he said this, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. You know, the early church was severely, severely persecuted. They suffered terrible injustice, and yet they held true to this command, to love your enemies. One of the earliest church leaders was Polycarp, and... uh, Just at the beginning of the second century, I think it was around 105, he was arrested and marched to Rome, and it was a long, long march. But they allowed him to write back to the church, and he was going to be killed, and he was. He was killed in in the Colosseum. But he said this to the believers as he was going to certain death. Pray for all the saints. Amen. Pray also for the kings and the powers and the rulers and for those who persecute and hate you and for the enemies of the cross in order that your fruit may be evident among all people, that you may be perfect in him. So Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and prayer for enemies are mutually reinforcing. Jesus prayed for his tormentors while they were crucifying him. You know, he's addressing an issue that is incredibly real in the church right now. Especially right now in the 21st century, our loyalty to Jesus can cause us to be hostile to those outside the church or those outside our nationality or outside of our culture. Jesus wants our love to be inclusive. That's what he's saying in that passage. And then he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. You've heard it said, the scripture says, show no pity. He says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy. But he says, I say, love your enemy. Folks, from now on, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we must read the Old Testament differently. We cannot use it to justify hatred or anger or retaliation. No more praying for the destruction of God's enemies, which is probably our enemies, right? We can never read the vengeance texts of the Old Testament as binding. They can teach us the opposite, the way of Christ, but they are not binding. So from now on, when he says, but I say to you, the Old Testament is a different book for us. And when he says, love your enemies, it's plural. It's all kinds of enemies. It's, it's personal enemies, national enemies, religious enemies. He expands the paradigm from our neighbor is the Jew and our enemy is the Roman. He expands and changes the paradigm. We are challenged to embrace his paradigm. Here's a quote from Scott McKnight who, by the way, has an excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I like all of what I read with Scott McKnight. There is only one approach to living, excuse me, to living the words of this text. It begins when we confess who our enemy, uh, who is our enemy, and it ends when we learn to love them as our neighbor. I'm going to say that again. It begins when we confess who is our enemy, and it ends when we learn to love them as our neighbor. Until we name our enemies, we can't live these words of Jesus. Until we invite them into our home, or treat them as our neighbor, or love them as we love ourselves, we do not live these words. 
Biblical love involves action and responsibility. It's not, it's not emotions. It's not liking. To, to love biblically is to do what you can do to provide for the well-being of another person, whether or not you like that person. And then Jesus goes on and says, when you do this, that you may be sons of your father. Remember, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called what? The children of God. The father's goodness is indiscriminate. Remember, we read the rain falls on the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. This is called common grace. It is, it is the, the gracious, merciful heart of our father. Now, what makes us salty, salt and light, different and useful, is that we break the cycle of retributive justice. We break the cycle of striking back. We break the cycle of, of although we use different words, of hating our enemy. You know, he goes on to say, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, uh, what more are you doing than any other? Even in our greetings, we're called to be different. We're called to be inclusive, to live inclusively, to live impartially. Jesus calls us to a deep honesty about ourselves and about our Christian culture. To move from hate to love means reconciliation. Jim Forrest, he wrote a great book called Loving Our Enemies. He, he defined reconciliation as healing, the healing of our deepest social wounds. And don't we live in a time of social wounds that have been so exposed? You know, we don't use the word hate. That isn't very polite. That isn't very Christian. Instead, we simply exclude or we criticize or we denounce, even mildly. Well, don't get me wrong, but we need to begin to be honest, <coughs> pardon me, honest with ourselves and with our, our Christian culture. Folks, we all have enemies. This is part of what's been so challenging for me the last two or three weeks. We all have enemies. We live in a time of heightened cultural wars. I don't remember anything like it in all my years. Uh, the racial, political, religious, all of these things have, that were always there. It's like they've come out of the shadows. I, I read that uh, attacks in New York on Asian Americans uh, are up over 324% over last year. Why? Because of the, the Chinese or Asian virus, right? The QAnon, and I'm not even going to go there. We've had a terrible time. You know, many of you know that Christine and I are Canadians. We live in America for the last seven years. So it's like we, our hearts are in both places. But we had a terrible thing happen in Canada. It was, it, it came to light, oh, 10, 14 days ago that in one of the abandoned residential schools, residential schools were schools where the government forced the kids, we have them in America, we have them in Australia, forced the native kids uh, into their school. They couldn't speak their language, et cetera, et cetera. But they were places of incredible abuse. They just discovered 205 unmarked buried children's bodies in a school. Now they're, they're all shut down since the 70s, but there are scores, maybe hundreds of them, and now they say, oh, look what we've got to do. Or this one. On Sunday, we had a hate crime in Canada, in London, Ontario, near where I used to live, where, where uh, a white supremacist, he made it very clear it was a hate crime. A family was out for an evening walk on a Sunday night. They were Muslims. And he ran them down. Four of them killed instantly, the, the youngest boy fighting for his life. These are the things that just bring tears to my eyes. We have enemies. You know, the evangelicals, to some degree still, I still confront this, to my surprise. But evangelicals' enemy is the Catholics. Uh, or the mainline Protestants, those liberals. The enemy of the whites are the blacks, and yes, they are. And the enemies of the black are the brown. The enemy of Christian Republicans are Christian Democrats. 
I heard it again a day or two ago, and vice versa. Loving our enemies has got to go beyond tolerance. We must make a commitment to be with our enemies. If we'll come to a place of admitting our discomfort with and even our animosity toward a group of people, then we need to reorder some of our time to be with them. Do we distrust refugees or feel resentment toward them? Then go spend time with refugees. If you want to, it's not hard to find them. Do, do we harbor any ill feelings toward any racial group? Go to them and be with them. You know, propagandists understood during wartime long ago that, that you got to keep the enemy hatred in, in the general sense. you got to hate a, a people group and don't let them, for heaven's sake, don't let them get to know one of the enemy because that disempowers the lie. And the final thing, and I know it's full today, but Jesus finished in verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In the grammar, I want you to know it is not a command, it's a promise. You shall be. And you must be, as soon as possible, a perfectly mature people. Teleos, the word for perfect, means complete, mature fully developed, to come of age. So this verse is a summary of this passage that we've just been looking at. Love or mercy for enemies because of God's love for everyone. To be perfect in love just as the Father is perfect in love. It's interesting, the, 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 the chapter 5 uh, finishes, you must be perfect, Helios, Luke's version in the Sermon on the Plain says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. When I use the word perfect, our modern idea is about uh, being impeccable, um, without flaw. But, but in, in the context of the first century teaching, the word was used, uh, teleos, perfection of mercy, of right motive, of unconditional love. The simplicity of Jesus' command is this. Because God does not discriminate, we too are called not to discriminate in choosing who we will love. The lifestyle of the Jesus way is distinct because it draws inspiration from the character of God, not from the norms of society that is around us. I'm going to stop there and... uh, There's just a a short video break here, and then I've got some things that I've really been pondering that I want to share from the heart. God bless you. Hopefully, I'll see you in less than a minute. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. I'm on. Great. I want to just give a few things to think about and, uh, and then we're wrapped up. But I wanted this separate. I've just been teaching you. Now I want to kind of share my heart and some of the implications of what I've been teaching you. A few things I want us to consider. Jesus said, you are salt, you are light. And what makes that true is that we affect our surroundings. He says, if, if you're not affecting, then, you know, there's no use. Secondly... We are ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. This is bigger than being being, uh, nice for Jesus. We've tamed the gospel down so much into how to be nice, how to be good people. He, he, He doesn't need us to be nice. The gospel is dangerous. It's a revolutionary gospel because it is so countercultural. 
Thirdly, our first allegiance must always be to Christ and his kingdom. And I'm sorry to say that is not obvious. That is not obvious. Fourthly, related, our citizenship is in heaven if we have truly changed our allegiance, then he is the director of our lives. And that direction makes us willing to step over our discomfort, our convenience, our our fear of being rejected. I just was in a discussion earlier this week that in social media there's a term FOMO, fear of missing out, that it is such a deep fear. The next thing, either we follow Jesus or we follow society. Either we follow Jesus or we follow society. Going to church for an hour or two a week is not following Jesus. It is the way we live our lives. And so we will either follow him or society. It will be one or the other. It cannot be both. Society, with the the spiritual principalities and powers that that are underneath it and all around it and influence it. Society, through the powers that be, is telling us, yes, you can have both. Don't, Don't be extreme. Don't be radical. The truth, according to Jesus, is either we follow him or we don't. Um, We follow him or we follow society. So I ask all of us two questions, questions that I ask myself continuously. (sighs) To whom do you really belong? And secondly, who do you trust? When I was a kid, there was a show, a game show with Groucho Marx called Who Do You Trust? I'm uh, surprised to say I remember that show from the late 50s, early 60s. But who do you really trust? We all know what to say. We all know the right answer. But Jesus continuously, we're going to see this more in chapter 7, he says, the answer is in the fruit. The answer is in the fruit. And one of the things that is so hard for me, the Western church, Canada, Australia, UK, US, New Zealand, the Western church has has done very, very badly at being change agents, at being salt and light. I've written about this in one or two of the books, that there's no statistical difference between, we'll call it the church and the world, between those who say they follow Jesus and those who don't claim to. Let me just say a few more things. I know these are confrontational, but if we really listen to the passages we went through, Jesus confronts. Every bit is hard, harder. He confronts us directly with how we will deal with aggression, even assault or violence. Our kingdom of heaven citizenship demands that we live by a radically different standard from the world. By that I mean our society, our culture. Let me read this passage to you again. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you uh, on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. The instinct to stand up for our rights, to protect ourselves, is incredibly strong in every one of us. But it so easily leads us down the path of, of retribution or even violence. When being confronted by an armed crowd that had come to arrest Jesus, Peter instinctively takes a sword and, and cuts off the ear of a servant. And Jesus' response was immediate. Let me read this to you. 
Matthew 26, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? (sighs) But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And I don't want to take the time on this, but some people say, oh, yeah, but Jesus said in Luke, you know, if you got a sword, bring a sword. Well, it's completely out of context because he says, Lord, we even got two. He says, that's, that's more than enough. A whole mob, 12 disciples, and he's saying one sword. What is it? It's because of the prophetic word uh, that uh, he said this, for I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he is counted among the lawless, and indeed what is written about me is being fulfilled. By them having a sword, he's arrested as a criminal. So, this is really challenging stuff for me. Jesus was consistently nonviolent. If you look at when he cleared the temple, he used a whip to move the animals along. He never hit anybody. He was consistently nonviolent. Today we're presented with a non-retaliatory nonviolence of living the Jesus way. He says, do good to those who hate you, Put your sword away. Whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. I want to finish with something. And what I say, I have people listening I know in Africa and in Asia and Australia and Canada, and and for you, this won't be very hard. But for some of my American brothers and sisters, this is this is a challenge. Because of all of what Jesus just said, what we just studied, is not theory. It's a new reality. It is, it is what it means to follow Jesus, to follow the Jesus way. So by loving our enemies, by doing good to those who hate you, I want to now give you some statistics. Between January 1st of this year and May 31st, Here in America, there's been 254 mass shootings. A mass shooting is when four or more are shot. 254. I think we're at probably about 170 days into the year. Gun violence deaths so far this year, 18,901. And we say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, if we're salt and light, it has a lot. And even more directly, this is what it has to do with us. Gun ownership in the U.S. is 11% higher for evangelicals than the rest of the population. The single highest rate of gun ownership for any group anywhere in the world is white evangelical males. And we are bombarded with a a whole push that says, it's our right, it's our right, it's our right. Did we not give up our rights when we left our citizenship and our citizenship became that of Christ, ambassadors of Christ? The gun industry isn't telling you it's your right, you better have a gun because they they want you to be safe. It's because of this. The last year, 2019, the last year we've got stats for, the gun industry brought in $63.5 billion. And that's why they keep telling you, you need more guns. So do we seek our, uh, and this is debated, our constitutional right to bear arms? And it is debated, and I'm not going to get into that today which is Caesar, or do we follow Jesus, who today, in his words, have confronted us head-on with this. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. And so I'll say again, 
Either we follow Jesus as salt and light, as those who have given our lives to him and not said yes in a prayer meeting or at a Sunday, although there's nothing wrong with that, but that isn't following Jesus. Are we going to follow him? Are we going to choose him or choose to follow society? It's one or the other. I know these things are hard. I feel them deeply. You probably know. But I, have, I cannot sidestep. It may be more polite or more expedient for me to sidestep what I've just said. But <laughs> we need to be people of Christ, followers of the Jesus way. So, Lord, as, as we wrap this up, this has not been an easy word. And all kinds of yeah buts rise up. But it comes down to this. You made it crystal clear. Do good to those who hate you. Love your enemy. Put away your sword. You made it as clear as could be. The early church made no excuses. Let us stop making excuses. Let us be salt and light. I believe salt and light can change the surroundings. But even if not, let us choose to follow you and not the culture. Help us with this, Lord. Help us. Let it, your word go deep into us today. I ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.